Hello everyone. Welcome to episode 76 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. If you've ever had to recover from a serious illness, injury, or surgery, the last thing you want to do is go through it again, because it's often hard to recover properly and fully. But if you are lucky enough to live a long life, odds are you'll have to do it more than once. Fortunately, they often aren't things you can ignore and avoid, and you have to take the steps towards healing if you want to get back to life as you knew it before. Even though awareness around mental health setbacks is more robust than ever, what's often not accepted is that they aren't guaranteed to be a one-and-done thing either, and that the next time might not be anything like the last time. This mind trap can layer on confusion, frustration, exasperation, and even feelings of failure on top of the issue you already know you're facing. Just because you heal from something and grow from the experience doesn't mean you can't get knocked down again, in the same or a different way. We get sick more than once, we get hurt more than once, and our mental health can suffer more than once, despite all our best efforts. And because our internal systems are interconnected and interdependent, issues can be multi-layered. If we choose to ignore effects on our mental and emotional state as a root or secondary issue, we can easily lose the battle, and at worst, the war. Here's my second conversation with Chris Howe. I think a good place to start is that you've started your own podcast. Yeah, so the podcast is called Authentic Adversity. I just interview people that I've crossed paths with in my life that I feel have uh, overcome adversity in life and who have jumped the hurdles that life has put in front of them and are living a better life as a result. And the hope with the podcast is to inspire and motivate some people that might be listening, that might be in a hopeless place where they feel that they can't get out of the majority of us out there have been in that place at one time or another in our life, whether it's through addiction or mental health struggles, family issues, whatever their issues may be. I try to kind of touch on a little bit of everyone's experience so the listeners can hopefully draw some hope from that and motivate them to take the steps towards changing their own lives. That's awesome. So you've got people from a variety of backgrounds and how are you connecting with them to have them on? Actually, a lot of them are people that I have relationships with already, people that I've either connected with via social media, people that are in my sort of like in real life environment. A lot of people that I've just met through traveling and we just kind of connected on a on an emotional level, sort of carried that friendship via whatever, whether it's Zoom, FaceTime, social media, whatever it had been. They're all people that I feel have come into my life for a reason. And, and they inspire me. So I hope that I can pass that along to somebody that, that may listen to the podcast. Yeah, authenticity and adversity are, it's, it's nice that those are topics that are we're seeing across a number of platforms. So the more we talk about those two things, I think the better, especially authenticity. And one of the things we wanted to connect over because we did our episode before, and then obviously some time's passed from now till then was the talk around brotherhood. And so I think authenticity and brotherhood, maybe those two things and being genuine and what does that mean? So maybe you had a different perspective then than you do now based on your experience. So I think that's what we want to sit and walk through and fill me in on. So I can kind of take you through my experience over the last, I guess, five years now or so. That's probably when we recorded the last one, about five years ago. Time flies. Life was good. If anyone, if anybody had been listening to the, the previous episode, I think at that time, got a promotion to an officer's rank. I was a captain, definitely taking accountability for uh, mistakes I had made in the past and and 
the feeling as if I was thriving in my career, my personal life, and and my recovery life as well. I was about 10 years into my own sobriety. I started to notice, and, and in that meantime, I had gotten married to my, my current wife. She's got a, a beautiful son who's now in my life. My perspective on life in general had just changed so much with them coming into my life. I couldn't have been happier. And then something started to shift. And my wife would mention, like, what's going on with you? You know, you seem a little short tempered. You seem irritable, agitated, very, you're always tired. You're always complaining about something. And that's not me. I try to be as positive as possible. I, I'm, I'm not a complainer, or at least, at least I try not to be. Some people may disagree with me, but I try to take the positive out of every situation. And, and certainly at the time that I met her, there was so much positive in my life uh, because, of, because of her and my stepson. Sort of around that time, I had started to go on some calls that were, they were noticeably affecting me in ways that uh, I hadn't experienced in the past. Definitely a lot of suicide and overdose calls. The opioid crisis had been really ramping up. I think I talked about this on our last episode that when I went to these overdose calls or, or mental health calls, suicide calls, I, I really, I saw a piece of me in each of these scenarios. And I saw that patient as I've been this person before. I really connected with that, with that patient on a emotional level. I think that we, we all were guilty of this to a, to an extent that when we started to go to all these overdose one after another, we're going to the same house over and over again sometimes three times in one day for the same person who's overdosed and been brought to the hospital and they're making these same mistakes. It's easy to get very tired in these situations. It's easy to get very complacent. What I saw around me was a lot of a lot of negativity towards these addicts. I took it a little hard and sometimes I get into arguments or or debates, I guess I'll let's call them at work with people saying like they may be good people that have made some bad decisions in life. And I was that person at one point in my life they have the potential to be good again. They have the potential to recover. So for us to take it easy because we know we're going to that same address again or like blow this call off as like, oh, we're just going to so-and-so again. It's another one of these bullshit calls or, or and I hear the kind of the the talk around in the hall and in, in the truck after the call with, and it's it's very negative towards the addict who we're there to to work on and to and to help. And no different than, the patient who's experiencing chest pain or no, no different than the, the, the patient who has been in an MVC or a rescue that we're doing. Everyone needs to be treated equal that way, right? In, in our line of work. So I went to one call that was very unexpected and I showed up to uh, an overdose death and it was um, a very close friend of mine. And I work in a, a different city than I live in. And I, and I really, I like that because I like my work life to be very anonymous as far as like patients that I go and see. I don't want to, as much as I do connect emotionally with some of these patients, I don't want to roll up to my aunt's house, my uncle's house, my grandmother's house, right? Or friends. I found uh, one of my best friends from years past, overdosed and dead. And he had been dead for some time. Like it was quite obvious. When I went into the room, I didn't recognize him. He was face down. And I, and I just, I, I felt this like, this very familiar feeling of, in the room that he was in. And I, I could tell it was, this was an overdose. It was very obvious with the certain paraphernalia what, that was in the room. And when my guys rolled him over to have a look, I realized this is my, let's call him Steve. It was like my breath 
my breath was gone. This guy, he had reached out to me three weeks prior to that saying that he's really struggling. He needs help. He wants to change and he's ready for change. And he recognized that I had gotten sober. And this is a guy that was right next to me doing, doing all the things that I used to do. And I really tried to point him in the right direction. I offered my hand in, let me come pick you up. I'll bring you to a meeting. I'll bring you to detox. All the things that people in recovery do for somebody who's struggling. It's our duty to help others that way. It was like a dagger through the heart when I saw this guy. His parents ended up showing up and I, you know, I was the officer on the scene. I had to talk to his parents. It was a really like a guttural feeling that, that for me, the fact that he had just reached out for help, the fact that he was such a close person. And I saw even with these anonymous people, I, I, I felt a kinship, but this is a person that I really knew. And I really, I held them in high regard because we had been through a lot together. And there was hope there. There was hope. Yeah. He reached his hand out for, for help. And that's the first step. Admitting that there's a problem, actively seeking help, picking up that phone to, to call somebody who you think can help you. And that's a giant step for somebody, right? And so after that call, I didn't let on that I knew this person because I wanted to keep things very professional. His parents, I recognized them, but they didn't recognize me. The last time they had seen me, I physically looked a lot different because I was in active addiction then. So I kept it very professional, really, really had a hard time talking to them about it and then walking away from that scene, knowing that he'd been there for a couple of days, most likely, you know, it was, it was a bad, you, you know, those scenes. Yeah. And so when I got back out to the truck, there was comments that these are my guys. This is my crew that I'm in charge of. And they're talking about like, well, just another junkie and, you know, like waste of our time and these kind of, these kind of calls. And I, I really, um, every comment that was made, I understand that this is a way of dealing with stuff, but in our culture, in the fire department, there always is that sort of dark humor. We can't cry about it. So let's just laugh about it. I do understand that, but I didn't, I didn't take it that way. Right. I had a discussion with the guys and, and I didn't tell anybody that I knew him because I, I, I just, I've always been very careful about keeping work life and, and personal life separate. What had been happening at home around that time and after I was short with people, I was snapping back at people when I normally would be quite compassionate and kind. I was acting very um, out of character. I started to have, and I hadn't had these before, but I started to have night terrors and panic attacks at night. And that was a new experience for me. And I could not get, I could not get the scene, the smell, the feeling, the, like, I, I couldn't, I felt I couldn't, I couldn't wash myself of, of anything to do with that specific call. Of course, there were so many other calls that were, that felt a little bit that, that way, but that one was very, very close and personal to me. I, I noticed that my tolerance for, everything around me was just so short to the point where my wife and she's my wife is sober as well she's very in touch with and and in tune with her own emotions and and she feels other people's as well so she knows especially people like myself and her son like we're her closest people if we're off kilter just a slight bit she'll she'll know it and she'll call us on it and she's she's wonderful that way cuz She'll tell you when you're full of shit. She'll tell you when you're misstepping. And I like that. We're accountable to each other. She talked about it a lot. This is not you. This isn't the guy I met. Like, what's going on? You got to talk to somebody. And I, I was very open and very vocal about the fact that we should be talking about our mental health. 
We should be seeking help. We should be keeping mentally fit as well as physically, spiritual, all these things. And yet I felt like a hypocrite because here I was at that point, 10 years sober, and I had felt like I did all the work. No way I can be, I can have mental health issues. I've done all this work in recovery and I'd done a lot, but not deep enough. I didn't seek help and I just kept acting out. I didn't relapse. I didn't hurt anybody. I didn't do anything that was over the top, but it was certainly out of character for me in, in my life at that time. I started to have these panic attacks at work on night shift. They never happened on a call, but they did happen around the, around the station or after a call in the middle of the night. I'd, I'd wake up very short of breath, panting, pacing around, feeling like my heart was about to jump out of my chest. The feeling was like I needed to rip off all my clothes and get out of my skin. That's the only way I can really explain it. But for some reason, nothing in my brain at the time said, go get help. Even though my wife was telling me, even though I was talking, doing public speaking about recovery and mental health, and here I am speaking about all this stuff, but I'm not doing it myself because I've, I'm resting on my laurels of this, I did the work in sobriety. And I thought everything else is a wash. I've taken care of everything. So one night, about 3 a.m., we got called out to a basement fire and we were the first truck on scene. So we went in as fire attack. I was the captain on that truck. We went down to, to the basement to find the, the seat of the fire. And as I was walking down the stairs, I felt one of these panic attacks coming on. You've been in basement fires. Everyone, it's not a comfortable place to be. No, We all know the dangers of a basement fire tough to get out of a basement if you're trapped. Very scary things about a basement fire to begin with. Now here I am walking down the stairs and I get to the bottom of the stairs and I freeze up completely. I don't know how long I was in this sort of like frozen state or this like just I felt like I had paused out. My mind was racing. I couldn't breathe. I was like hyperventilating, but I didn't feel that I could get any actual oxygen in. I felt my guys like start to say, hey, what the fuck? What's going on? What's going on? Let's go. Let's go. We, like they can see the fire. Like, let's, let's move, like get moving. And I'm not moving. And they're like, what's going on? As I said, I don't know how long I was in that sort of state for, but when I kind of like came to, I guess I had that feeling of like, I need to rip all my gear off. I need to get out of this. I felt, I felt trapped. I've been in a lot of scary situations in my life, personal life, work life, whatever. This is one of the most scared I have ever been in my life. And it wasn't necessarily a big fire. It wasn't a fire that should have like, this is something that like, no, no big deal. We go and take care of this. It's something, it's very routine, but I didn't know what it was at that point. And I had this full blown panic attack. I had no idea what to, what to do, but I knew I couldn't, I needed to get out of the house. I needed to get my gear off. So I got on the radio, somehow got a breath together and said, I had an equ equipment malfunction we need to back out of the fire. Can you send another crew in to take over? We left the line there so another crew could follow it in. Regretfully, I lied about what was going on. Some people have said this to me after the fact. They said, well, you didn't lie because you did have an equipment malfunction, but the equipment was you. But how else do you communicate that over the radio really, right? Like, what am I supposed to say? I'm having a panic attack and I'm scared to be here. I need to get like, it's, right. that doesn't- With no that, context. That would, no context. And that I think would incite more panic in everybody than, than need to be. That, would, that might sound like a mayday call. 
I said that it was an SCBA problem. I switched up my bottle. The other crew went in and, and took care of it. We went in afterwards, and but I had calmed myself down to the point where I could actually go in and do some overhaul stuff and, and whatever. But bottom line, I went home from that fire, did my report, put a, a bogus defect in for my uh, SCBA. I left work that day thinking, this is the first time that I haven't in, in, in sobriety. This is the first time that I have failed myself. I'd failed my crew. I'd failed the department and I failed the public and I'd put people in harm's way because I wasn't able to effectively do my job at the time. And it was because my brain was not there. And it was such an uncontrollable thing. It scared the shit out of me. I made an appointment that day. Luckily, I was going on seven off. I made an appointment that day to speak with uh, a psychologist because I told my wife and she said, okay, enough's enough. Like now do it or else, right? Like call and make the, make the appointment. And at that point, I, unfortunately, this is sort of like, um, I guess I can liken it to a rock bottom for a drug addict or an alcoholic. I, it had to get to that point where I had to say, shit, now you can't do your job anymore because of your mental health and the state of your emotional well-being. It was a scary thing to admit. Uh, again, like I said, I had been talking on this subject for so long. I went in, talked to the psychologist. I told her what happened. I told her what had happened leading up to the the whole story with a lot of examples. And And she's like, well, have you ever done any testing for PTSD? And I said, no, 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 no. I I don't have that. I'm I'm good. Like, and I kept going back to this thing. Like, I'm I'm in recovery. I'm sober. I don't. I'm I've taken care of all that traumatic stuff. And she's like, Would you humor me and and take this test and answer the questions like as honestly as as humanly possible? Like, I want to know because what you're explaining to me is textbook. I said, Yeah, of course. And at that point, I I was desperate to know what was going on with me because now I felt terrible. First of all for making a story up about my SCBA. I had other people going to test this equipment and what's going on with this and do we need to do retraining on something and do and and so I'd caused a bit of a bit of an issue in my department that way. I felt like I was back at this place of like letting people down, keeping secrets and covering things up. Yeah. And and how do people trust me when I can't even trust myself? And and now I'm in an officer's role. It had me questioning just about everything to do with my career. I went and did the test. They came back and they said, listen, you sit on the severe end of the spectrum for PTSD and anxiety and a little bit of depression stuff there. But like, those are the two big ones. Our recommendation is that you don't go back to work until you get some treatment. For me, because I had been this this advocate, I felt like, how can I go off and say mental health? What is this going to look like? I've been speaking about this for so long. I was finally in a place, like I said, that I was I was proud. I was proud of my position at work. I was confident in my skills. I was doing really well, and and now I'm I'm back to square one. Back to that feeling of hopelessness, helplessness, and and almost a worthlessness. At the end of the day, I had to think about okay, what's the safest? What's the smartest? Let's take care of this before I can move forward. And I and I thought it was going to be a, a quick let me go to treatment for a few weeks, and and I'll be back on the road. They took me off the road on their recommendation. So I found it really odd. And this is the part where we talk about brotherhood and, and this sort of thing. And 
this is going to get a little bit negative and this is just my experience and and one person's experience is is not necessarily the way everyone is going to experience this but i i got to uh, i got to tell sort of my experience and the way that the way that it looks on my end of this i'm going to give you an example 3 years prior to that i had torn my acl fighting muay thai and and we had like 150 guys on our department when i was off work for that torn acl I had 120 guys text messaging me, calling me. Can we take care? Can we grab your groceries? Can we go f- take you for coffee? Do you want to get out and and hang out? Do you want to come by the hall? We'll come pick you up and and just hang out, have a coffee with us, have dinner, come for a, a Saturday night dinner at the hall. Very very supportive, overwhelmingly like to the point where I had to say like, okay guys, enough's enough. Like just l- let me, let me rehab this thing on my own. Like I, I appreciate the support, but I really felt the love there. I go off with mental health and it's crickets. I received, and, and still to this day, over like three years of being off with this claim out of 150, or probably 170 guys on our apartment now, I have nine people who have reached out to me. Some of them are guys that they're amazing. They don't treat me any different. They call me and they text me, what's going on? Just make jokes like we used to. It's very, it just feels like, hey, this is a friend. This is not a coworker or whatever. But the rest of the department is just unheard from. In my treatment, so I went away to treatment in BC, Nanaimo, BC to Edgewood, and they have a, a specific program for first responders there. I spoke to a lot of uh, police, fire, ambulance, and military there that have had very similar experiences. My program was great. I learned a lot. I really dove into, I looked at it as like, hey, yes, I'm 10 years into my sobriety journey, but here's my new recovery journey. And I can sort of get reinvigorated and, and re-educated and, and, and sort of like, I took that treatment and the aftercare very seriously and I and I quite enjoyed it because I I do love learning about this stuff. But the one thing that was sort of that that this nagging this nagging thing in the back of my mind is like where where are all these guys that and girls that that used to reach out when I had a an injury that they could see. I guess it begs the question, right? Like why are we so happy to help when there's an injury that we can understand but so scared to reach out or to come near a mental health injury that we can't see. And I think about this nearly every day. And I spend a lot of time thinking about it, probably too much time thinking about it. And, and I don't blame personalities for this. I don't, I don't say, oh, this is, I can't stand these people because they haven't done this. I, I, I look at it as a blanket. Our culture isn't quite ready to, or equipped to know how to approach people the same way they would if they had an injury or or if they had cancer or, or something like that because we're not as familiar with mental health injuries or disorders that are quite common in our work and i think too and i could be wrong this is my this is just my my thought on this is that a lot of people don't want to hear what it's like because they're scared that they're going to hear some very familiar things could there also be a part where they know you're off because of work and they are connected to work. So them calling you connects you back to work and they believe they might have a negative effect on you. So by leaving you alone, whereas if you have a physical injury, talking about work or connecting with work doesn't make your physical injury worse. I'm not saying that that attitude would be correct, but do you think there's a possibility of looking at every perspective that maybe some people feel that? 
Yeah, I think that's super valid. And I do believe that some people might look at it like that. I can totally respect that. The thing that I have done, because I was so disturbed by this, I've let my friends know who who I do connect with on a regular basis. Hey, like put it out there to the guys. I've I've reached out to my um, union president. I've done interviews that I've sent to to my chief to say, hey, like this is the full story of like kind of what what went on. I'd love for the guys to know what it's like to be on this side of a phone that's not ringing when you're you're so lonely. I've got my family here. I've got friends. All this stuff, but. When it comes to my professional life, when we're off with something like this and not feeling supported, it's really, really hard not to think about it. And it gets very lonely. I don't necessarily want to talk about work with work people, but I said to somebody before, I'm very desperate to just have a text message from the people that I'd see on a regular basis at work and have, and that I felt like they were my friends just to say, Hey man, thinking about you. I've said to to my friends and and to my union president and that sort of thing like these are my thoughts like please like echo these at work I'd love for people to know that it's okay to reach out to me I would love to hear from people and that doesn't mean that we have to hang out that doesn't mean that we have to have a a, a text chain going all the time but there's certain guys that that text me once a month just say hey man just checking in hope all is well thinking about you, love you, just like very, they're not asking for a response. They're not asking for, it's just like, hey, I'm here. I haven't forgot about you. And I think that's the big thing, right? We haven't forgot about you because it's sad. I feel very much, I think a lot of people who go off work and have this experience, you feel like you've been swept under the rug, like out of, out of sight, out of mind. Well, it's strange enough when you have a physical injury and then you come back on modified. And even if you're on shift and with your crew, which is really great, you do feel different because you know your your gear is not on the truck and then the truck leaves and comes back. Like you're not, you're there and you're part of the crew, but you're not. It's when you're not running calls, right? That's the, you're with us or you're not. Not that that's what's verbally said, but it, like that's a that's a visceral feeling that happens. There's a couple threads I want to pull on that I've been making a couple notes here as we've gone on. So I just want to walk through them sort of in in order. Just getting back to that call and you talked about getting back in the truck and the things that were being said and the attitude that was in the air. And and you you mentioned that you didn't tell the guys that you knew them. And I just find it interesting that I, I think it's fair to say if you had told them that you knew them, that suddenly their attitude probably would have changed, right? Which doesn't mean you should have. My, My point being is that there is an ignorance and an arrogance that goes along with with othering other people, right? With seeing addicts as people that just made bad choices and now they're paying their dues. And if they had just made the right choices, they'd have a great life. And when you're in a quote unquote good place, right? You've got your family, you've got your house or where you're living and your vacations and you've got your money and your savings and, and you're making all the right decisions. It's easy to, from an ivory tower, so to speak, look down on everybody else. It's not making the right decisions and make this blanket statement. Well, if they had made the right decisions, they'd be doing well too. So they're just either stupid or lazy or what have you. So I just think that highlights the fact that if you had said something to them that their attitude would have changed, it really puts a spotlight on people that feel that way and how we other other people and we're very much lacking in an understanding. This is the ignorance part of how much pain that people are going through and drugs for that person just happens to be the thing that is using as a coping mechanism just to stop the pain. 
And then obviously when they, when you start to do that, that is going to that's going to spiral in a downward direction. And it's when you get deep enough in that downward spiral, it's it's very hard, if not impossible, to climb your way back out. And mental health becomes physical health. They just negatively, synergistically affect each other, and it gets worse and worse and worse, right? And it's so hard to come back. So, yeah, I just wanted to put a point on that with the fact that maybe people can reflect if they hear this going on in their own trucks or they see or hear this attitude happening while they're going to addicts. Even if you're going to the same person for the umpteenth time, it's a sign of how much they're struggling and how hard they have it in life. And and maybe a little bit of empathy can go a long way. Is that fair? That's very fair. And empathy can go, yeah, definitely a long way. And to that point, actually, is that say we've been there 17, 18, 19 times, the 20th time might be that time where they say, you know what? enough's enough. I've seen enough of these people. I'm going to the detox once I get out of the hospital now. That might be the time that everything changes and that family gets that person back. Our community gets that person back. That person gets themselves back because people that are battling with active addiction are very, very lost. They're not necessarily bad people. They're people that have made some bad decisions. And as you said, the drugs or the alcohol, whatever the substance may be, is their coping mechanism because they're desperately trying to escape their pain. I had mentioned this to to my crew a few times that, yeah, we're going back to the same person's house for the fifth time this shift or, or whatever it may be over the last two shifts, but this could be it. This could be the time. This could be the time that they change. We have to give them 100%. We have to give them the benefit of the doubt. And I always try to, and this is because because I have personal experience in this, I always leave that scene with positive words for either the patient or if they're not conscious or, or the family, friends, boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever may be around. I've gone as far as to let people know if they are wanting to change that they can get a hold of me. I've given a family... I don't know that this is necessarily um, something that I would suggest for everybody to do, but I've given a very concerned family my personal number to say, like, listen, I've been through this. I've been, I've been your son and your daughter before. I know how to change this once they're willing. So here, reach out. And I've seen that family reach out and I've seen that person seek help and change and is thriving in recovery today. We've all had compassion fatigue. We all have maybe not been at our best. We may have had like you said, humor when we shouldn't have. Like that's this isn't to say when we're speaking of these things that we haven't done these things ourselves. But it's it's worth having the conversation to, as to check ourselves and to also put it out there that other people may reflect and check themselves as well. Another thing to consider that, that I find helps to check myself and other people is that you may go to a person thirty times in a year, but you're still only seeing a snapshot of their life. You're not seeing the breadth of their entire life. So to make this sweeping judgment is pretty harsh and unfair. Some of the guys that are making the judgments and being unfair and lacking in this empathy, they probably have some coping mechanisms that are unhealthy that they're using. And just because they're not physically and mentally damaging them right now and affecting their life and their family the way, say, drugs would have, if that had been their coping mechanism of choice, for some reason, it's okay for them to have their unhealthy coping mechanisms, but it's not okay for other people to be suffering with theirs. So there's a bit of hypocrisy there too, right? So Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I witnessed a lot of that where the loudest voices that were complaining and calling these people out, I have seen and I know are like boozing their faces off every night and showing up to work hungover. And I know that maybe that humor is because you don't know what else to do. This is take the attention off of me or, 
and I will say this too, to your point that like, I've been guilty of making the jokes. I've been guilty of being a part of the, that at times as well. So it's part of our culture. We're very much like chameleons. When we see some people start to joke about something, we feel the need to, to fall into place and, and sort of like change our colors for the people surrounding us. Or it's not worth the argument at that point, or you're too tired, or it's too late, or whatever. You're not going to get through to them, so I'll just go along with this and let it slide. I think we're all guilty of it a little bit, but it is very important to, as you said, show a little bit of empathy and compassion towards others and and maybe to be that voice where everybody is changing colors and, and you're the voice that says, hang on a second, that's actually not that funny. That's not that funny because I've been that person and I know how they feel. And then you're the voice that initiates the change of atmosphere, change of conversation and, and the tone. Yeah. And I think the, like I said, touching back to that litmus test of if you had let it go on and on and on and on and then suddenly said, actually, that was my friend, I knew him, the tone would have completely changed. So why do we then have instant empathy for the person that's more closer to home because you know them and they're concerned about you, but we can't expand that concentric circle of empathy to people that we don't know. And then it also brings me to thinking that we say in our interview and we're saying all the time and we're, we're, we're getting it from the public about how great we are because we show up daily and put our lives at risk to help people. And it's like, well, I want to help people, but if I have to go to that same guy for the 10th time, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm, that's my limit. So you say you want to help people, right. but how much do you want to help people? If I have to go one more time, I'm done. I have a 10 time limit and then I don't want to help you anymore. So what is helping people to you? Exactly. Yeah. We didn't say uh, we want this job to conditionally help people we, we said we're supposed to unconditionally help right which, which would make it about you it'd make it about well i want to help people in the way that i want to help people so i feel good about helping people you're not just helping and maybe yeah, like you said maybe going the 30 times and i know it's hard i get it like no one's saying and the compassion fatigue is a real thing and and this is on top of everything else that's going on in your personal life is on top of all the other calls you're going on to and you're dealing with lack of sleep like all the things you and i have talked about i get it but just to highlight the moment of it has an effect. You don't always know what you're saying and how it affects other people. And even energetically, if no one in that truck knows the person that you just went to energetically, there's something that I think goes out into the universe that could be maybe handled a bit better. So I also want to touch on, you were mentioning about experiences too. So I just love the fact that we're going to talk about it, that you said, I'm, you know, I was going back to that feeling. I was going back to that place, or I thought I had done all the personal work. Versus that idea of I had done a lot of personal work during a time that I was really struggling and I learned a lot of things. Now I'm dealing with something new. And you did say, you know, you had a new feeling now, which was this recovery. So you could have pneumonia when you're six, right? And then go through all the things and get better. And then suddenly you've got bronchitis when you're 15. What's that supposed to mean? That means like, well, you did all the th healthy things to, to start keeping yourself healthy and you're living a healthy lifestyle and you don't sick anymore. And now you're sick again. So what, all that works for nothing? Like, Right. Did you not learn yeah. anything? Did you like why why is why are you not just now healthy for the remainder of your life? So Yeah. I've had to come to a place and I just love to hear your take on it too of you've done a lot of personal work. That doesn't mean you're exempt from or there's no way you're ever going to be affected by anything ever in the in the world because you've just done this work and you see everything coming and you handle it properly and you just it slides off you like Teflon. It's like you just have a different skill set now, and maybe part of that skill set's going to happen with the new thing. Maybe you need a brand new skill set, but I think you just have things, skills that you can use to move forward. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be experiencing adversity or struggle over again. 
I think it goes back to the this sort of adage that the work is never done, that we're going to always, if we're people who are proactively or reactively working on ourselves, this is not something where we graduate from. This isn't a, a course we take and we say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm done the work and, and I'm, as you said, like, you know, I'm, I'm Teflon now and I can go into the world as bulletproof and not be affected by anything because I've gained this skill set. I really look at it as um, collecting tools along the way. I'm filling my toolbox with coping strategies, with experiences that I can go back to and draw from and learn from and things that I can I can identify as warning signs or like I can go back and reflect from this point on I can I can carry this so for example when what my wife noticed in me the short-temperedness and and sort of agitation well now I know that that is a clear marker for me that something is going on that needs investigation to remain open to that investigation for the remainder of my life is paramount because I never want to end up in that place again where I'm in this hopeless helpless state feeling the need to lie or escape. And that doesn't mean that I won't be there again in some way, shape, or form, but I will have more tools at on hand to deal with those situations. And I didn't have those clear markers back then. Now I've got the tools for when the shit hits the fan, but I also have those reflective moments where I can say, oh, here's the, here's, Something's off kilter here. I need to work on something. I need to, maybe I need to meditate. Maybe I need to speak with my therapist. Maybe I need to refocus on some coping skills that I picked up in treatment or things that I learned in early recovery. Maybe this goes back to early childhood for me. There is like a myriad of, of possibilities, but now I'm learning different ways to investigate my emotions, which is, I think, a, a, a huge thing. And remaining open to that investigation keeps me in a place of constant learning, sometimes falling short, but nonetheless learning, right? I'm always learning and I'm adding to that toolbox. And yeah, things are going to happen. Family stuff that happens. My ability to handle situations is changing because I'm collecting these tools and I'm collecting these experiences along the way. And around that feeling of guilt or shame or imposter syndrome, because you're speaking about mental health all the time and and I've done the same. So like, I, I, I fully get what you're talking about when you're saying that. You could say, well, who are you to be out talking about all this? Because look at you and now you're struggling. It's like, that's, it's so short-sighted. It's like, so you went through a heavy, heavy experience. You did the personal work. You realize, oh my God, these things that I learned really helped me. I want to help other people. And maybe they're going through the same thing. So you start telling your story. You start advocating. You start getting out there, educating, like bringing it up in conversation. When you're in a good place, maybe you know you may not even be in your best place. But when you start to have some capacity, you're taking care of yourself, and you have this little bit of capacity to help others. Your first instinct is to help others. Like I think that's huge. And then the better and better you get, however lucky you get in that phase of your life, however healthy you you can be, you want to help. You get more and more capacity. You want to help more and more. That's what that is. That is when you have a, a, a widened capacity and you're in a good place. You want to help others. That's not to say that you can't be now rocked with something harder than you you went through before. 
and you're knocked down and now your mental state is not well you're not making clear decisions or thoughts you're not reflecting it's always say like well you know all these things when the bad thing happens you should just reflect clearly and you should just fix it then this is the whole point like when you're rocked by these things your brain is affected it affects the way you decide what your actions are it affects your perspective so you're not you at your best so you're not gonna be making good decisions like that's just human that's okay i think it's really important for other people to to hear and for us to have that give ourselves a bit of that grace too and not instantly jump to well i shouldn't have talked about that for 10 years and helped all those people because look at me now now i'm struggling again i agree and i and i think i've i've come to that place now where i've started to do a little more talking uh, publicly and and just i mean simply just doing something like this is being of service to others and making myself accountable and and telling my story without shame now i don't feel the shame that i did back then because yeah, I realized that life ebbs and flows and what I was speaking about was true to me back then. It's still true to me today, but I have more experience. So what I've found that in, in now doing like public speaking or even podcasting and stuff like that, I feel like I've got this new facet of experience to draw on to talk. So it's not just about recovery from addiction or whatever, but now I can, I can speak from experience on post-traumatic stress disorder anxiety, panic attacks, and, and the treatment that's involved after the fact. And I'll, I will say, like, I'm proud to say that I'm recovering from these things, the same as I have been proud to say I'm recovering from addiction. Again, it's like a, another piece to the puzzle of my life. And I think we all have that, right? If we want to even see the word recovery or struggle as a spectrum, right? I think it would be fair then to say that pretty much everybody could be in recovery from something, but they just haven't figured out that they have an issue that they need to address. Whether that thing is small or whether it affects you deeply for years and your family, we could probably all benefit from having some self-awareness and recovering from something. We're always recovering from things. Like you said, life is filled with challenges and, and suffering for the most part. So it's all about experiences and recovering and, and soldiering on and moving forward. Also want to touch back on the um, fact that the panic attacks and all these things were happening at work and it took that moment to be a really stark message to yourself that you need to do something. Have you found overall, and maybe this is why we hold on to it for so long, that work can become that one thing that's helpful because it's consistent? Even though we don't know what calls are coming, you and I both know there is a rhythm to work. There is some recognizable things that happen in the day. There's a lot more structure than maybe is let on, right? It's not all just random. There is a flow. There is a pace. There is a, when I'm at work, these things have to be done. There's distractions. You can't necessarily be anywhere else because you're at work for these 24 hours. So when you feel helpless in every other aspect of your life, sometimes that can also give you a sense of some stability and control. So when that gets rocked, man, that's when that, that feels like that's your last the last stable ground you have and that's cracking and that's that's horrible to feel that that's very relatable and i think at that time as i had touched on before just progressing to an officer's role was something i thought never possible for myself so i did feel a sense of pride when i put my uniform on and as we spoke about in the last episode together i had to go back and relearn some of the things that i that i took for granted as a probationary firefighter and for the first say 8 years of my career and i felt like i had finally checked all those boxes and gained a little bit of respect from my department and 
I had been offered more responsibility at work, which is, I felt a sense of pride. And definitely I felt like no matter what else was going on in my, in my life, I knew who was going to be at work. I knew what my role was at work and the calls were going to be different, of course, but I knew, as you said, yeah, there was a, there's a rhythm to my day there. There is something about, even though you don't necessarily see eye to eye with everybody on shift, it's like, they're still your people. They're still your, you know what I mean? There's a familiarity there and a, you know, the personalities and you know, the, there's a comfort level. And so, yeah, when that, when that becomes rocky and, and then everything outside of that is, is feeling the same way. It's a, a very, very scary place to live. It's a very scary place to exist. Yeah, that was the last sort of straw that broke the camel's back is when work kind of fell apart for me. And I'll say this too, like I'm not back at work yet. I'm still off. I still haven't been, I'm still in treatment. Like I'm still in, in ongoing treatment. I did want to really drive this point home for people. Emergency responders who, who listen to your podcast, if there's one thing that, that I can say about being on this side of being off work, I did touch on it, but like, we don't want to be off. We're not, we're not living our best lives being off and, and getting paid. And there's always this lingering feeling of like, oh, do people think I'm full of shit? Do you do, am I, am I viewed because I'm not at work and I can't talk to these people or I, I haven't had anybody reach out. I don't know if I'm looked at as a fraud. I don't know if I'm, and, and there's, that's a real concern for people who are off. And it's a terrible feeling to think that all your, these people who are supposed to be your family, your brothers and sisters could possibly think that you're somebody that's like bucking the system or that you're, you're off and, and benefiting from it. And it's not easy to not go to work. It's not like everybody might think it is like, oh, just retirement. It's work to be off with something like this. And we need to know that we're not forgotten. We need to know that, that people are still there for us because if and when I go back to work and get on a truck and put my uniform on again, I have to feel that these people care enough about me to rescue me out of a fire or care enough about me to, as an officer, to listen to an order that I give or, or just share space with me. It's really hard to be on this side of things, questioning every person that doesn't reach out and remembering all those jokes and those good times and the, the text messages that you'd share with these people before this happened. It's a heavy extra layer that you don't need to be coping with when you're dealing with everything else. For people who are listening that may have friends and coworkers who, who are off, it doesn't require a lot to send a text message. I mean, we're all in the digital world. What I've done with people who, who I hear that go off from my department, I, st I will reach out to them and I send a text message that is just as simple as, just want you to know I'm thinking about you. You're important to me reach out if you ever need anything, put in like, you know, I love you because I need that person to know that they're thought about, that they're missed, that they're cared for and that they're loved. And the absence of those text messages is, is a hard, hard, hard pill to swallow. Man, with the people that are concerned about the fact that it might be fraud or what, or what have you, like people just don't understand statistics, right? I think I've spoken about this before, but you know, any system that you put in place, let's use taxes, for example, right? what percentage of people are not abusing the tax system? Like probably a vast, vast majority of people, 
right? So sick time, right? So the, the vast majority of people, like up, upwards of the 90s, are probably not abusing sick time. But the 5% or whatever it may be gets all the attention. And sometimes attendance, like let's use attendance management programs, for, for example, they can be used as a way of like, well, if we put our thumb down on everybody equally, then we'll get to the 5% that are abusing the system. If you understand statistics and you have a, a good sense of you know, that most people are good and trying to do their best, there may be a few people that are off and abusing the system. And maybe we do have some proof in the past of that that's what's been occurring. But the other 98 or 99% are just, are thankfully the system is there and for them to be able to be off and heal. And it might happen to you, so be thankful that it's there when you're going to need it. And again, not just sit in your perfect, comfortable ivory tower thinking that you're just going to ride out this utopia of your life until the end. And if, again, if everyone had made right the proper decisions like you have, they'd be in the same place. So again, it, it just comes back to the, those two things of ignorance and arrogance. And that combination is just so harmful. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, the statistics are, are staggering. And we both know that there's a lot of people that are still going to work that should be off. Some of those people who have reached out to me from from work have reached out in that in that capacity like very curious to like how did it feel when you before you went off what were your symptoms because i'm feeling and then they list off their symptoms or what what they've been going through and i'm not a psychologist i can't tell them i can't diagnose them but to me it sounds very similar to what i was dealing with and and that would very much qualify you to get help and i urge every single person who is exhibiting some of these symptoms to at least investigate, go speak to somebody, go through the testing. The amount of damage that, that we can do when we're not treating these symptoms is, is quite substantial. And I think that if we had more people paying attention to what's actually going on and, and how we're actually feeling and, and maybe had some humility to say, okay, I'm going to go talk to somebody and see just where I sit on that scale of of things because I I can't imagine that anybody goes through a career in emergency services that doesn't sit somewhere on that scale like we all collect traumas along the way we all have outside traumas we have childhood traumas um they look different for everybody but I can't imagine that anybody goes through a full career unscathed I mean, we're all affected, right? So to be speaking to somebody, whether it's proactive or reactive, to be speaking with a therapist on a regular basis and actually have somebody to, to say like, okay, hang on, then that doesn't mean that the, everybody has to go off work and go into inpatient therapy. We've got benefits. We can go see psychologists and, and, and these things. And it's, it's such a healthy thing to do. I know for sure I will have a therapist for the rest of my life because so much of my life has improved just by showing up to my weekly therapist meeting on so many different levels. So I see massive benefit whether somebody's struggling or not. There's weeks that I'm not struggling as as much. And just speaking with that therapist, having that regular meeting is so therapeutic, so beneficial to me. We all want to catch prostate cancer and breast cancer early, don't we? We want to catch it early and we want to get on it. So why are we waiting until you have, I have, why do you wait till the crisis moment until you, you have to, like, at what point is it going to be, I need to stay at work until the very last moment and then go off and then it's valid. 
as opposed to I was fifty. I was fifty percent there, and if I would have went off there, it would have been a lot shorter recovery. I would have been better, and I would have come back, and it would have been easier. Why does it always have to be right to the limit? Why do you have to be at your limit and break, and then it's valid? I don't understand mm-hmm. that. that arrogance that we we all have, and in this uh, this sort of like indestructible um, attitude about like we're not affected by anything or we want to trick ourselves into thinking that we can handle this and this is just work and we're paid well to do this stuff and and this is part of the job and we've accepted this part of the job and so that means that we're not affected automatically but and our arrogance prevents us from that early detection or that early early intervention and so we let it go and go and go until we break and then it's like oh shit our world's imploded on us now, as you said, the recovery is now like tenfold. Had we not left it until absolute worst case rock bottom scenario. Well, I'm glad you had the awareness. I'm glad it, it came to your realization. I'm glad you took the steps and I'm glad you're still healing. I'm glad you're speaking about it while you're doing it too. Again, it just goes to show that you don't have to be in a perfect place to speak about what you're experiencing and, and have a benefit for others. So, I mean, it's, it's just so huge that even when you're dealing with something that you're still thinking about helping other people, that's, that really speaks to your character and who you are and how you see brotherhood in the fire service and, and just being a good human in general. So yeah, I appreciate you for all that. Well, thank you, Scott. I really appreciate it. That means a lot to me, really. Anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up? I think just that main point that I really wanted to drive home was just that Reach out to somebody. If your peers are off dealing with mental health issues or any issue, treat them as if they were still on shift. Treat them as if they they were uh, at home sick or they had a broken leg or, or, or whatever. They couldn't perform their job because it's no different and we don't want to be forgotten. We want to stay in the loop. We want to, yeah, we want to know that we still exist in the department's eyes. One day we, we are going to have to come back to work and hopefully come back to work and and we want to know that these people care about us and and everybody wants to be loved everyone wants to to know that these are people i've spent 20 years with i need to know that you still think about me it's it's it's, that's the main message that i'd like to put out there that just reach out to people stay in contact let people know how you feel and i kind of joke about this sometimes when i run into people from work and they say oh i'm sorry i haven't reached out or whatever i was like oh were you scared you're gonna catch it you know (laughs) like i just joke about it a little bit but like just yes we're off yes we're going through a lot yes we're we're actively working on ourselves and doing the work that is required to get back to work but that doesn't mean that we that we don't have a sense of humor still that doesn't mean that we can't talk about it Uh, in fact the further along in our recovery that we are the more we want to talk about it and the more we want to, as as you sort of touched on, we want to advocate for people in our who are in our position, and and we want to educate. To me, the fire service as a whole, I know that we are taking steps to further educate our members about how to deal with mental health issues. It's really going to take some people that have been through it to speak on it from an experiential sort of learning position to say hey, this is what it feels like. This is what we expect. This is how you can help your brothers and sisters. 
maybe people need to realize too that you're for themselves and for others you're allowed to have good days while you're off and you're getting better because isn't that the fucking point <laughs> you're, exactly. so, you're supposed to be having more and <laughs> yeah. more good days until you're better just like a, your ankle would be oh now i'm walking on it oh now i can kind of do stairs now i can hop like people understand progressionally getting in better that doesn't mean like oh, okay well you can stand up so now you need to come back to work it's like no healing means like i'm gonna have good days here and there and those are going to get closer and closer together and now i'm having really good days and now i feel great and now i'm going to come back let's have that perspective too how can people find your podcast and get a hold of you if they want to get connect the best way to find the podcast is youtube it's the authentic adversity podcast or if you want to jump on instagram it's just at authentic adversity uh, my personal instagram is at underscore chris underscore how underscore the the podcast also i don't run this but somebody somebody is like running a tiktok page for me so that's also the tiktok is authentic adversity clips so on there you can see just sort of snippets of episodes that we've put out and then hopefully uh, jump over to the main place that I'd like people to go to is the YouTube because that's where I'm struggling the most and I'd like to see the numbers sort of pump up. But yeah. And the full episodes are there, yeah. And the full episodes are there and the long form content, I know that people's attention span are... Anything uh, longer than 15 seconds is... <laughs> yeah, well, it's the TikTok culture, right? Like right. there's a lot of meaningful stuff there. All my guests are are people that have absolutely inspirational stories. So yeah, go check them out. Awesome, man. It's good to connect with you again. Yeah, thanks, Scott. And I want to say the last time that we met, it was an honor and a pleasure. And just like this time, I know we're not in person this time, but I love what you're doing. I love that you're so consistently who you are and, and that you're getting this information out. I just really appreciate it. And I know how much work it is. And I so I appreciate you for that. 